Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Very happy to have you with us today for a conversation with WORT's own Frank Emsbach about his new memoir, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. You probably know Frank is a co-founder and producer of Madison Labor Radio, right here every Friday at 5.30 since January 1998. You may know him as a co-founder and executive producer of the syndicated Workers Independent News, which broadcast every weekday from 2002 to 2017. Or maybe you know him as Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin School for Workers, where he taught from 1991 to 2008. Those of you of a certain age, or those of you who have read your history books, will recall his service in the 60s as chair of the UW Socialist Club, then chair of the National Coordinating Committee to End the War in Vietnam, a member of the Steering Committee and lead organizer for Madison Citizens for a Vote on Vietnam, then a successful doctoral candidate in the History Department. But in the 20 years or so between those two Madison eras of academics, activism, and communications, a sojourn in Massachusetts, wearing different colored collars as a hospital lab technician, skilled machinist, foundry worker. And in each professional iteration, he has taken after his father and been a class-conscious union leader. Here as president of United Faculty and Academic Staff Local 223, and in Massachusetts as executive board member and steward of competing unions first at the largest shoe machine manufacturer in the country, then at a GE plant. All in all, it has been quite a life, making Troublemaker quite a book. I myself included four references to Frank, plus a photo over a three-year period in my book, Madison the 60s. So it is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Frank Emsbach to Madison BookBeat. Well, thank you very much, the doctor. That's uh, most people don't say that, but you made a point in the book about the, about the time that one of the uh, management reps addressed you familiarly without being properly introduced. So I want to show the proper respect for uh, for your training and qualifications. Well, thank you. I just referred to your father, Julius. So much of your academic and working life has been learning from, learning about, and dealing with the union legacy of your father that I think we need to start there. Tell us about the important role he played in American labor history as the founding secretary of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union. Well, the, the UE, as it was known, uh, was founded as, as part of the CIO, that is the Congress of Industrial Organizations, it was one of the founding unions. And what it believed in in 1936, when it was founded, was that all workers who work in a particular company should be in the same union, not a bunch of different competing unions. That's the first thing, the notion of the notion of industrial unionism. The second part was that he, as a uh, as a worker from GE, and his father had worked there too, uh, recognized the importance of the General Electric Company as a guiding ideological and manufacturing power in the United States, similar to General Motors, hence the need, the strategic need to organize it. Thirdly, he brought to the table a class conscious vision, not only class conscious vision, he had dropped out of Brown University as Hungarian, first generation, uh, Hungarian speaker, actually, first generation person, 
at Brown University in a graduate program studying philosophy. And in 1933, leaves Brown and goes to work at GE, which was uh, at that time RCA in New Jersey, making TVs, incidentally, and um, begins to organize the uh, electrical industry. So he has a philosophical vision and a political vision and a class conscious vision. That's what he brought to the union and probably the best educated union leader of his generation when you think about it. And uh, he was considered old when he started this because this was he was about 26 or 27. So uh, here they go. And by 1940 had brought about the organization of General Electric, the key plants, which was Lynn, Massachusetts, Schenectady, Erie, and um, uh, as the key, the manufacturing plants built a coalition with a much more conservative wing of the union based in Philadelphia, and another one with a more radical wing of people from the machinist union led by Jim Atlas. And so you now had United Electrical, which is GE Radio, which are the people from Philadelphia, and Machine, which were people from Brooklyn, among other things, because Brooklyn was the second or third largest manufacturing city or part of a city in the United States in the late 30s, making machines. Anyway, um, so they come together and form the United Electrical Workers. They had a very, very strong commitment to the notion of political independence. They did not feel, and they paid a price for that, the destruction of the union ultimately. Um, uh, they did not believe that the UE, UE should be an appendage of the Democratic Party. Internally, they said that anybody who is a worker in the industry can become an officer, which meant in the context of the time, no matter what you believed in or were a member of, say like the Communist Party. And in fact, there were a significant number of party people, public party people elected to office throughout the union. Interestingly enough, in places like St. Louis and Ohio and Illinois, not in New York or in Massachusetts, where the president of the union there, A.J. Fitzgerald, was a basically Wendell Wilkie Catholic. He became president of the UE in 1940, when basically the GE members said that the current president at that time, James B. Carey, who was a, um, a very devout Catholic and Catholic militant, actually, uh, but they also thought was an incompetent, uh, was voted out. And uh, that began, in a certain sense, um, an alliance with conservatives within the larger labor movement to go after the UE. So that's the short, the short version. By the end of the war, you should know, it had about six, 700,000 people. And the, the major companies like General Electric and Westinghouse at the time were 70 or 80% organized. Now, uh, Westinghouse has disappeared basically as an American manufacturer. And um, uh, the number of workers uh, still unionized within GE is probably about 15%. And take the story up to the role of the CIO in essentially setting up the competing IUE to, to raid the UE and how that affected the development of the labor movement. Well, the, the conventional thing is that the bad communists had taken over some 13 unions, the monumental and smelter workers, the UE, and so on and so forth, and had to be extirpated. That was the CIO's position. 
Uh, it turns out that, um, and uh, this was part of my PhD thesis, I actually read all the documents and uh, the leaflets that people wrote and so on and so forth. And it was not generally uh, that. What happened was, part of it was, what was the deal going to be after World War II? Would the unions fight for universal benefits as opposed to just wage increases for them and uh, too bad for everybody else. And in fact, the initial positions of the unions in these massive strikes after World War II was that the Office of Price Administration had to stay in effect and be powerful so that if there was a wage increase, the companies couldn't just pass it on as a price increase. Well, uh, the liberal end of the trade union movement at the time, which was led by Walter Ruther, did not support that. And in fact, signed with General Motors. And basically, the agreement was they could raise, GM could raise prices. And after that, the unity of the three major unions, Steel and Auto and UE, fell apart. And uh, each union wound up settling for a you know, significant wage increase. But the social basis of the contracts disappeared. Okay, that set a whole pattern, which was unique in the United States where wages would go up, but the cost would be passed on to the consumer and would not affect the profitability of the companies. As this is happening, you have within the Democratic Party a split and Henry Wallace, who had been the vice president under Roosevelt, announces that he is going to run as an independent, as a progressive in the, in the, in the vision of Roosevelt for president, at which point, the, uh, the AFL, the, both the, AFL, the CIO in particular, falls in behind uh, Truman, the president. While this is happening, while this is happening, the right wing wins, and this uh, may have something to do with next week or two weeks here in, in, in uh, the United States, but anyway, they win the election of 1946. The Republican Party carries the House and the Senate and immediately goes after the unions because they had been successful with these national strikes. And they passed a law called the Taft-Hartley Act, which resents and rejects, which makes it illegal for people to be in the Communist Party in the way in which you could do it then. I don't wanna get into all the Supreme Court things, but the, you had to sign an oath saying you weren't in the party. And if you didn't, if you signed it and you were, then you were perjury. And if you signed it, and, um, and you know, came out publicly and said, yes, I'm a communist, and you got fired. So in any event, the whole purpose was to destroy the class conscious section of the trade union movement. At the same time, the one we interviewed actually in 19, in 2002, one of the writers, Workers Independent News, found the last remaining partner of the Taft Law Firm in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we interviewed him as sharp as a tack and he said, yeah, well, we couldn't abolish the unions, but we could make it so that they could not grow. And we were successful in that. So they had a very, the right wing had a very clear strategy here of division and uh, controversy to be injected within the trade union movement. Meanwhile, in the CIO, you had people who said, let's go after these lefties. They didn't like them in the first place. There's been a long split for 50 years, the American trade union movement, between just trade unionists and relatively conservative people who accepted capitalism, and a group like my father and many, many others who said capitalism's a problem here. 
Anyway, that split had been going on for years. So now you had an opportunity. You could resent and reject the presence of communists, which is what the CIO did, and then go after them and begin to split the unions and say, either you get rid of these people or you're not going to be, uh, we're not going to work with you. And that's what happened. So in 1949, the CIO expelled 11 unions, about a third of its membership. At the same time, companies refused to recognize the locals in place, refused to carry, collect the dues, refused to bargain with them. The government, through the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, and the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, Humphrey, incidentally, as the leader of that, Hubert Humphrey, um, went after each of the officers of all these different local unions and the largest amount of money spent for organizing by the steel workers, the CIO and the UIW was aimed at raiding or taking the unions that existed out of the existing ones, out of the UE and setting up individual other unions, in this case, the International Union of Electrical Workers. But the motivating factor seemed to be the issue of support of the Democratic Party. Because once the, the leadership, now you have this left leadership, they take a local union, they're elected, the IUE comes by and says, look, join us and all will be forgiven. And it was. In other words, if the issue was really communism or they didn't like these people, there was a class conscious issue. And this whole group that suddenly joins the IUE, which many did, and then they're left in place. They could come with their local and their officers and everything else. So clearly there was another motive here. That's pretty obvious. And so um, uh, what you had then was the disorganization and disintegration, not only of the uh, United Electrical Workers, but the food, tobacco, and agricultural workers, the largest union in the South, the mine, mill, and smelter workers, which had organized the black miners around Birmingham, Alabama, an integrated union with an elected black vice president nationally, and several other organizations. The net result was the movement of the CIO into really an appendage of the Democratic Party and the elimination of thousands of thousands of class conscious workers, not leaders all the time. But in one case in, in Chicago, for instance, in Emerson uh, Radio, I think it was, um, I just found out the company came in and fired all the lefties, right? The union tries to get them back. They're all out in the street. That section of the leadership was gone. The same thing happened in Lynn and in, in General Electric and all the places that the IUE won. All the lefty people, the class conscious people were edged out in some fashion. So a certain way, the unions blew out their brains. This is aside from the fact that this group of people throughout the labor movement were the leading fighters against racism and sex discrimination. So those, those, those movements, absolutely crucial to the future, took a step back. And your father gets caught up in this. The House Un-American Activities Committee uh, issues a subpoena in 1949. What was it like to grow up in Yonkers in the post-war years as a Cub Scout with a father who was being held in federal custody because for contempt of Congress in 1952? Well, it was sort of a two-level thing. Uh, uh, nobody, none of my friends, you know, were all nine or 10 or something, had any idea what was going on, and nor did I. 
in, in a certain sense. I remember when, when um, in high, I think I put it in the book, I don't remember, but in, in, in grade school, I think it was the election, the presidential election must have been 52 or 56. Um, Eisenhower came through the city, came through Yonkers. And we all went down to look at him on uh, near the school and they were all hello, you know. And uh, so when we went back to um, class, the teacher in perfect honest innocence uh, said, uh, your parents gonna vote and everybody raised their hand, you know. And she says, well, how many are gonna vote for the Republicans? And, you know, some of the class raised their hand and how many are gonna vote for the Democrats? And some of the class raised their hand. I didn't raise my hand. She said, well, your parents going to vote for? I said, Hallinan, <laughs> running for the American Labor Party, which was considered to be a communist front and so on and so forth. Well, okay, you know, nothing happens. The next thing that happens is the, pre the principal comes in and gives us a lecture about communism. And I'm sent out, you know, to go work in the garden, the little garden that was part of our class. Nobody, my compatriots, my nine and 10 year old friends had a clue. Well, how could Frank suddenly get in trouble? He's a good guy. What the hell's going on here, right? Well, when I got home and told my father about it, um, he, has, he was home with a cataract operation. He uh, had, a, I thought he was gonna have a stroke. In any event, next day, um, I'm in class, like all the other 10 year olds or whatever. And uh, you could hear the conversation between him and the principal um, throughout the building, actually. And he show, and she shows up a few minutes later in class and says, well, it was all a big mistake. You know, everybody has the right to do this and right to do that, blah, blah, blah. None of us understood what was going on, except that there was something really odd here. And somehow or other, Frank, is something going on over there, but it's not clear what. So in that sense, there wasn't hostility. In the sense of reading the newspapers, you know, you, we didn't have neighbors, any neighbor that ever dropped in to say hello in our neighborhood. I mean, even though, you know, we have adjacent properties, people said hello, but you didn't have people over for coffee. That just didn't happen. Except this, up, this neighbor up the street, um, devout Catholic, uh, Irish guy, he, he would come by when something particularly bad was in the paper and, on, and be supportive. Then I was friends with his son who was three or four years older. This, but, is, sort of, this is sort of setting a pattern for the rest of your life. Yeah, well, uh, certainly in terms of some neighbors, but the, um, I, I, think, I think it was um, it, 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 the political hostility didn't come out until we were more politically conscious in high school. But um, in elementary school and growing up, you know, there was uh, something was happening, but, uh, but I was not singled out in class and people didn't attack me as they did in some other parts of the city or other little cities in, in Westchester County. When, when he was called to testify, your father declined to testify, quote, primarily on the First Amendment, supplemented by the Fifth. Right. What does that tell us about him, that that's the way he phrased it? It tells you that he felt that being a, that if you're active politically, you have rights in this country, and you don't have to claim that you're self-incriminating yourself if you don't say something, that fundamentally, free speech is the basis of the country, and that the government has no right 
to restrict free speech. And free street speech includes an assembly, includes being a member of the Communist Party and doing whatever you want as long as you're not engaged in illegal physical activity. And that was his vision of democracy, a very, a very robust democracy, one which I share uh, completely. And I think that um, ultimately the Supreme Court, uh, more or less, but um, enough, agreed with that notion that, uh, that, you know, under the First Amendment, you have rights. You don't have to um, explain what they are. You don't have to sign oaths and so on and so forth. And so the initial conviction, which I think was for perjury or something, was overturned. But um, in terms of a real glowing, you know, affirmation of the First Amendment, um, I don't think you've had that. You don't have that. I don't, I have not seen any, but I'm not a constitutional scholar. But I, I would like to see a real glowing, strong affirmation of the First Amendment, not sort of a backdoorish thing. Well, I, it's okay. You mentioned that you wrote your doctoral dissertation on the UE and the breakup of the CIO. It appears from the end notes that you did some new research to write the book. In those two eras of research, did you learn or realize anything about your father or his role in the labor movement that you didn't know or hadn't fully understood before? Um, I think so, but I think it's actually been more recent than that, uh, quite honestly. The, first of all, I, I got a much better sense doing the research what the UE really was in terms of local communities, that there were people like uh, when I was at United Shoe, I'm working away down there and on the first floor and somebody comes by and says, hey, you ought to go visit the, uh, these guys up on the third floor. So I go up there eventually at lunch or something. And what do I find? These bunch of Italians who are all been Communist Party members, who are all public about it, who'd all been elected to office and were all still there and were thrilled that I'd showed up. They said, oh, good, another generation of troublemakers. And, um, you know, uh, but that's part of what built the union. And I got a real sense for rank and file class conscious people. And the UE symbolized to them a way forward. And I met people like that all over the place. I mean, I'd be shopping someplace, anywhere. And some, because the name is distinctive. So, oh yeah, Emsbach, I knew, you know, I knew your father, or I knew this, or I knew that. And um, so I got a sense that the UE was really part of the community. So I learned about that. I also got a better sense about the ethnic composition of, of the workforce. I mean, everybody in the family spoke Hungarian, but the, or Yiddish or uh, something else, but um, they didn't want the kids to learn, like in many, many second generation of families in the United States, very typical. Well, you know, when I get out in the world, I suddenly discovered that, gee, all of these groups were at each other's throats in many places. And one of the things that happened in the UE particularly in the electrical industry, where the company hired and up until the 70s or 80s, according to ethnic groups, really, it was amazing. Um, uh, you know, the, the UE brought them together. And you would see in the leadership of these locals, particularly the large locals, an Italian, a Hungarian, um, a French Canadian, a Lithuanian or whatever, you also saw a willingness to print the materials in all those languages. And so there was a recognition, and I think that came in large part from my father's vision of the working class, that 
that everybody has rights and are, should be treated equally and respected, but that there are certain things that bring people together. We're talking with Frank M. Speck. His book is Troublemaker Saying No to Power. So what brought you to the University of Wisconsin in the fall of 1961? Well, um, a couple of things. I didn't get into the places that uh, my parents wanted me to go to, like Harvard or uh, Swarthmore or whatever. I did get into Union College because uh, my father was there. And I got into Wesleyan as on the wait list because I was manager of the football team and I needed a manager. Um, so I could get into Wisconsin. So that was good. Secondly, it had a good reputation as a school, a science center. My uncle graduated from Wisconsin with a PhD, and he was very hot on Wisconsin. And I was a chemistry major. I wasn't a history major. In fact, I, my degree is in zoology, which is now molecular biology. But anyway, so it, was, it had a good reputation in terms of areas that I was interested in at that time, science and not so much history. And then some friends of mine got in that I had been working with in New York um, or and in Westchester County, where we lived on uh, peace and social justice issues. So um, seemed like a good idea. So I, you know, like almost everybody else in that generation, having never seen the place before, got on a plane. And I remember flying over Madison in this little plane at that time. And uh, on the top of the, uh, the, the airport had a big, big hangar. And on top of that, in big yellow letters, was Madison. And I thought to myself, what have I done? You know, and, uh, you know, when you're coming from LaGuardia, New York City, I mean, my goodness. So, but um, it turned out, I think I got an excellent education. And it was a great place as far as I'm concerned. You note how important the Green Lantern Eating Co-op was in providing that initial entry into progressive politics. Can you talk a bit about the importance of Green Lantern, the Socialist Club, the Student Peace Center, Groves Women's Co-op, uh, and the rest of that leftist social and cultural environment for providing a safe place for leftists to, to gather and, and fertilize? Well, I think Wisconsin, I don't know if it was unique, but the way in which housing worked in Wisconsin was that uh, you didn't have to be in a dorm if you were an undergraduate. And one of the consequences of that was that there was a tremendous amount of people living in apartments and living, sharing rooms with people and so on and so forth. Um, Wisconsin also had a sense, starting from the 30s, of a cooperative idea. So there were co-ops that students and or the faculty had put together for living, like Grove's Co-op, or eating, like the uh, uh, Green Lantern. Uh, up until then, and then we're talking the 50s and 60s, you, the Memorial Union was a major center for eating. I mean, it was you, you had breakfast there, you had lunch and so on and so forth. The fast food restaurants didn't exist. People either ate there, ate at a small restaurant in town someplace, or ate at their fraternity, and their fraternities also rented out eating spaces. So you could leaving off campus someplace and uh, you would be able to eat at the Delta House or whatever. So you had this sort of structure of co-ops, of eating co-ops and living co-ops, housing co-ops. So uh, they provided, a, you know, an infrastructure. They provided a place to go and you'd have friends or, you know, meet people or, you know, it wasn't a hostile environment. You just weren't alone. 
And that, and I think that um, I would say probably 25 or 30 percent of the undergraduate population was living outside the dorms and in, and in one of these places, an apartment or uh, a co-op or, or the fraternities. So it was a different culture in that regard and very supportive for some people. Some people, of course, um, as, as when you make these huge transitions from high school to this massive place, um, it's difficult. The other thing was the student union at that time, the Rathskeller, was you know the throbbing center of the university, no matter what your political beliefs were. There you were. And um, there was a whole very, very strong culture of football. Um, and the university was very, very eager to have people um, participate in that. If you were a freshman, you got a ticket for two bucks or whatever. And um, so there was a, a, a sense that the university is this, this group of people and that we're all trying to get an education. Um, and in that regard, there was mutual support. Um, I, I think without it, I, I'm thinking about other universities, but I, I just think the result of having those, those cultural and uh, sort of economic or, or eating places was that it allowed people to come together in a more collective way. And so the politics reflected that to an extent. There were some people from then who we still know of today. Uh, I think you were within a year of Paul Soglin, who was treasurer of the Friends of SNCC. Paul Brynus was president of the Socialist Club for a couple of years. Evan Stark was at the Student Peace Center. Marshall Brickman and Eric Weisberg were writing for the Anti-Military Ball, which you also did. Marty Sklar was editing Studies on the Left. Jeff Greenfield was editing The Daily Cardinal. Ben Sidron was playing The Rat Skeller. Were these people in your circle? Were these people that you knew and, and had dealings with? Yes, uh, not, not Ben and uh, Greenfield, but almost everybody else. Um, when we had the Dow uh, upheaval in uh, 1967, uh, what happened there was, um, uh, other than the picture and, you know, the beating and everything else, later that evening, about seven or eight o'clock at night, I was down in the library mall and bumped into Soglin. I said, geez, Paul, we ought to do something about this. He said, yeah. And I said, why don't we get together and have some kind of meeting? And so uh, we talked to people, raised our voices, hey, let's go over to the union, you know, and set ourselves up as a strike committee. I mean, you couldn't get much closer than that. We were all night sitting next to each other and trying to figure out what to do. And in fact, that Dow strike launched uh, Stoglin's career along with our Madison Citizens for a Vote in Vietnam. We'll get to Dow and, and the, the Madison vote in a second, probably more than a second, maybe a couple of minutes. Uh, do you remember the first anti-war demonstration you were at? Here. Well, it depends. Uh, you mean anti-Vietnam War? Yeah, yeah anti-Vietnam. Uh, well, I think it was in January of 1965 at the at the bank at the, up at the square. Now, I just remember it was freezing, and there was a uh, we had a vigil, and we were there all night, and it was about five below zero or something. And so that was the first one I remember. But we had had a couple of other demonstrations uh, before then. Um, and a couple of uh, um, discussions, several in the Socialist Club, Once, one in the magazine we were putting out called Sanity. There was an article written around 1961 or 62, um, raising issues about it. 
during the uh, anti-bomb business, which was 63 and 64, we raised some issues about Vietnam, but it was not, it just didn't come on the radar. So I would say the first demonstration really was that one in uh, right after the escalation of the bombing, which I think was probably maybe the last week in January, the first week in February of 65. Right. It was the very beginning of, of February 65. And, and that freezing vigil was probably was considered the founding of the local Madison Committee to end the war in Vietnam. And it couldn't be. I wound up uh, helping to edit the paper and putting it together and printing it with Ken Knudsen. So. I don't. Yeah, that's probably right. So so that's in February. And by summer, there is an actual national coordinating committee to end the war in Vietnam, of which you are named chairman. Why were you chosen and what exactly did it mean to be the national chairman of the national coordinating committee to end the war in Vietnam? I ask that myself now. What happened was this. We put out the newspaper called The Crisis which I liked to, to do because it was named after Tom Paine. That's why we did it, okay? Or that was the name we picked. And then why that's happening, I'm, uh, because of my anti-bomb work earlier than that with the Student Committee for a Say Nuclear Policy, I knew lots of people around and I was sending them letters saying, maybe we want to do something and, oh, what are we going to do here? And at the same time, the Vietnam Day Committee, which had really grown out of the Friends of SNCC, and this anti-HUAC movement out there in California and Berkeley holds this amazing demonstration called Vietnam Day in the middle of May. And they, it's a celebration of anti-war activity. I mean, think about it. the Jefferson Airplane, who nobody ever heard of, shows up and plays music. Thousands of people come. And uh, Jerry Rubin and Mark uh, Weinberg and a couple of others say, you know, we should have an international days of protest against the war. And sent out a note to people like me and others. Well, at the same time that was happening, um, people from the South, Staunton Lind uh, primarily, and Bob Moses, who just passed away, said, you know, uh, we should have a Congress of unrepresented peoples. And they had pulled together a bunch of pacifists and uh, civil rights people to say we should meet in Washington and, and we are the people, we are the unrepresentative, we should sit in the House of Representatives and declare um, you know, a very progressive uh, uh, um, economic agenda and declare peace. Meanwhile, in Mississippi, among other places, there's a lot of people who are not interested in going to fight in Vietnam, including a large part of the SNCC uh, staff, a guy wrote a very moving thing. Why should I fight in Vietnam when I can't vote here? So in August of 1965, uh, they call a Congress of Unrepresented Peoples. At that time, SDS was also just beginning, the Students for a Democratic Society. Nobody had heard of them. They'd had a demonstration earlier in April in Washington, uh, which was also sort of a success, not the kind of Brio and and really out front stuff that was going on there in Berkeley, but you know, clearly it was important. So uh, we're all there on the, the library mall, uh, burning in the sun, you know, and, uh, and you know, then we didn't have like the support of the police then, you know, you didn't have bathrooms, you didn't have water. It was very um, uncomfortable, but uh, there were people there from all kinds of organizations. Now, remember, we're dealing with the McCarthyism. We're dealing with the remnants of that, with the anti-communism. 
the communists had just come out of um, being underground. Uh, you've got uh, black students there. You've got people from the uh, very, very strong pacifists. You even had an American Legion post, I remember. Anyway, so we're all talking about what to do. Now, Madison was one of the larger committees. Madison also was not politically aligned. We were not in SDS. We we're not in the Du Bois Club. We were not in this. We we're not in that. And so in that regard, Madison was, uh, was, was positioned to, to be able to be a, a center of unity, we thought. Well, uh, given that, you know, um, who was available? Well, I was working in the hospital at that point. I wasn't in graduate school. Um, I knew a lot of the people involved in the peace stuff and, or they had heard of me. They liked the newspaper. Um, I had met some of the SNCC people earlier uh, at some point in my career. And so we decided to put together an organization specifically designed to mobilize for the October 15th and 16th International Days of Protests Against the War. And the, we set up something called the National Coordinating Committee. We used the NCC because of SNCC, NCC, but without the S, and uh, set about doing that. And I was chosen because I was competent and because people knew me and, and uh, probably wasn't going to become a national leader in the certain in the sense that people were already projecting themselves to be. And I, I didn't believe in that style. And um, certainly nobody chose me on the basis of he's going to be the you know, grand chieftain. But um, nonetheless, we put together an organization that was able to reach and mobilize thousands. And uh, not only not only in the United States, incidentally, that was the other major thing that happened. I'm, I'm sure this must have made your mother very proud. No, she was in tears when I called her and told her this happened. Uh, I'm sure she was proud eventually, and she said so in the paper eventually. But uh, the last thing that either one of my parents wanted was for me to do what they were doing or had paid a pretty high price to do. And because um, by that time, my father had already passed away. I mean, he had a massive heart attack and brought on in large part because of the stress that he'd been under. I mean, he'd been in, in, in he'd been indicted or in jail or uh, in in some kind of legal proceeding from 1949 to 1961, 1960. You know, and you saw what was terrible about the McCarthy thing, and then we probably was this. Here you have people who who got together to build their union, and then uh, sometimes childhood friends, as in my father's case with people in GE and Schenectady, the families from Schenectady. And um, all of a sudden you have this, you're gonna keep this union or not. If you say you're a communist or you turn in this guy, you're gonna survive and your local's gonna survive. You don't do that, you're through, and um, we're gonna destroy this. And a lot of people said, I guess we'll go along. So you had childhood friends, you know, people in the family, the real family, and your social family, completely destroyed here. And that's also what was going on in the 40s and 50s. So to be able in 1960 to begin to overcome some of this, these are also some of the challenges. Because some people at these meetings uh, were people who had been at each other's throats 10 years earlier. The International Day of Protest in October 15, 1665 
locally, you spoke at a demonstration down at the Capitol. There was a splinter group from CEWV called the Committee for Direct Action that went out to Truax uh, and attempted a, a citizen's arrest of the base commander who, as it happened, was Canadian. What did you think of that action? Well, that you know, here's the problem. I was asked by the newspapers and everybody else, do you support it? Our group had taken a position, the NCC steering committee had taken a position that my job was to say people should come out for October 15th and 16th and on any basis whatsoever be against the war and not support any specific action of one sort or another. So politically speaking, my job was to say, well, everybody should go do their own thing, okay? And so, uh, and, and, and so then somebody said, well, what is your personal position? I said, well, I can't have a personal position when I'm representing you know, 150 different organizations and they've been very clear about what I'm supposed to be doing here. Well, nobody wanted to hear that, including the group out at uh, Truex. But personally, I think that um, direct action was a good idea. I didn't think that was particularly well thought out. I didn't think it could happen. And um, would, I didn't see how that would work, you know, in terms of building the Madison anti-war community. I thought it was, uh, in certain sense, one step too far. But on the other hand, you know, two or three years later, here we are saying the Dow Chemical Company, you can't recruit on the campus because you're murdering people in Vietnam. Well, I know that the entire liberal left community who was anti-war at that time was opposed to that demonstration. And they probably had the same feelings that I did. That's one step too far. They're crazy. But I think we were absolutely right to do that. Between those two events, and actually, I think it was 56 years ago today, October 27th, 1966, there was the heckling of Senator Edward Kennedy at the Stock Pavilion that was organized initially by the Madison Committee to End the War, and then right. sort of spread <clears throat> to the extent that he actually left the stage. Were you there? And, and what do you think of that action? No, well, I wasn't there, first of all. And so, you know, and I didn't really hear about it until after it had happened. I think that, um, uh, I, I think it would have been better to try to engage him in some kind of uh, dialogue, but he probably was unwilling to do that. And I think that, um, so that was unfortunate. But um, on the other hand, you know, uh, when was it, a, a few months later? Maybe it was a few months earlier, I can't remember. The truth teams came to Wisconsin, sent by the State Department. They're going to tell us what to do. You know, that was part of the teaching movement. We're all going to, the problem is ignorance. And if we just knew these things, the policy makes do the right thing. Well, most of us in the Committee on the War in Vietnam didn't believe that. We thought that was just total nonsense. So we went to those meetings and heckled and asked questions and said, you know, uh, all kinds of pointed questions. Or when Harriman came, there was practically a riot because uh, I think Evan wrote the leaflet, but... Uh, you know, Ambassador Harriman, do you think that when the Russians seized your railroads that it had anything to do with your feeling about communism? You know, stuff like that. And it just was chaos. So on any particular day, this was happening. And me personally, I thought uh, the more, uh, you know, more is going on, the better off we are. I didn't think that we should be engaged in uh, violence. I didn't think that would work. And heckling is of limited, limited ability. 
but to try to find ways to challenge this um, uh, the war and not agree that it just we can just stop the bombing or just do this little thing or that little thing, but that root and branch, it's no good. And I felt that that was the the basis that we that I anyway had to proceed. Were there activists and political leaders in the movement whom you particularly respected for their creativity and analysis and insight? Well, it depends when. You know, I thought the uh, Vietnam Day business that Jerry and his friends had come up with was brilliant. And I think that uh, the Congress of Unrepresented Peoples that Bob Moses and Staunton thought of at the time was really was really a very smart move, right? I thought that um, the idea that we had of a referendum was pretty good. So Maurice Seitlin and uh, people, well, I was his number two, so, uh, you know, I'm not, but anyway, I thought that was a pretty good idea because it was a way of expressing, finding a way that people could enter the movement and express themselves in ways that they felt comfortable with based on local concerns. They didn't have to go to New York or Washington or something to do something like that. I thought people who were committed uh, uh, against the draft that I supported there and both physically and uh, financially and organizationally, their willingness to stand up to the draft. I thought that was important. And, um, you know, a lot of people uh, came to Madison and disappeared during this period of time. And um, there was a well-known, but I won't get into it, uh, uh, Episcopal uh, minister here, and it was like the Roach Motel. People came in and nobody came out, you know, and uh, uh, so I clearly supported that. Yeah. You mentioned Dow a moment ago, the most famous protest date of the 60s, October 18th, 1967. Hundreds of students flood the first floor hallway in the Commerce Building to prevent classmates from job interviews with Dow because it made napalm. Madison police come in, start whacking people, and throwing them out into the plaza, and things get even worse. How did you spend that day before getting hit in the head by a cop with his billy club? Well, I was working across the street. I was Maurice Zeitlin's project assistant. And we had just finished up all of the data gathering for the, for the project for a year. And at that time, the data was on these, what they call IBM cards, these little cards about six inches and about three inches in a big box. So how did I do the day? About one o'clock in the afternoon, Maurice said, why don't we have computer time? I said, oh, thank God. Okay, why don't you take it over there and get it done, all right? Because you, know, you have to be there at a specific time. So I have this big box of, of, of years' worth of data, you know, everybody's life. Walk out of the building, the sociology building, and across the street. And I notice that uh, there are some police on the, on the curb, on the, on the sociology building side, and nobody in between, and some kids down the hallway, and this, this dead silence. And I said to myself, something is going to happen here. This isn't a good idea to be standing here. And I took that big box of data, put it under the radiator, right in front of this big plate glass window, just as the police came smashing through. So that's how I spent my first few minutes of that demonstration. Right. And then, of course, uh, joined the crowd 
Maurice came out to try to uh, calm the waters. That didn't work. People simply ignored him. And, uh, you know, the police were doing their thing. And then um, uh, the group that was in the building was dragged out, basically. Then the police decided to use tear gas, which they set off, and then the wind blew it into their faces. And then the university came, always on the spot, with a truckload of bricks. Everybody parts the waters. They unload a truckload of bricks in the middle of a riot and drive <laughs> off. You know, uh, the bricks you can't throw. They're very, very heavy. But uh, meanwhile, somebody drove through the crowd in the car and almost killed somebody. But, you know, nobody cared. The police certainly didn't stop them. The person was taken off someplace. Anyway, and uh, so finally around four or five o'clock, everybody dissipates and uh, goes home. And there's 60 or 70 people in the hospital. And then after that is when when uh, several of us got together, but initially Paul and myself, and said, geez, we ought to do something here. Now, th so there's there's posters of both you and Maurice Zeitlin getting conked on the head. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, I found that poster because I didn't even know it existed. But my daughter came out here in 1991 to go to school and she's in the in the in a poster store and she says who looked at this and said that's you oh really because i'd seen other things of course of me getting clubbed in a movie of it but i didn't know we had a poster but uh, somehow or other it just slipped my mind you know but anyway um so yeah yeah but what happened at the same moment this is october 19 uh 67 in August, our group had begun to meet to discuss this referendum business and had decided at that time, specifically, Maurice and Emsbach don't get involved in this Dow business. We're going to have to try to organize a political campaign here. And we don't want the two of you on the front page of the paper, you know, having a riot of some sort. Nobody knew about Dow. but the, 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 So what happened? The exact opposite. And, um, you know, because, because you know, the times just swept us up. So uh, in any event, uh, a few days later, uh, we're meeting and um, everybody is saying, well, I, I guess you were there. I said, yes. And um, it didn't seem to make any difference. And some of these people, I mean, you have to understand, Lawrence Weinstein, who then became a regent, was, was, was our fundraiser. The guy who developed the whole South Side uh, was the um, sort of, you know, other fundraiser. We had the president of the Commercial State Bank there. I mean, people like that had said, and, and the, most, the most ideologically committed person, this guy, Jack von Mettenheim, who owned a significant feed company or a seed company, that was very strong anti-fascist, said they did what they had to do. Let's uh, stop this. Let's figure out how we're going to organize this. And they said to me, how are you going to do it? And I said, we're going to set up a ward and precinct organizing committee. It's going to be like Chicago. And that's what we did. The text of the referendum was, quote, it is the policy of the people of the city of Madison that there be an immediate ceasefire and the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam so the Vietnamese people can determine their own destiny. The contemporaneous accounts indicate there's some confusion among the general public as to whether or not the word immediate also modified the word withdrawal. The way I read your account, 
it seems like your thought was yes. It was an immediate with immediate ceasefire and withdrawal. Is that correct? And with 43% of the vote, 43% of the voters voted yes, which was slightly better than you thought you might get. But do you think you might have had the referendum pass if you use the word orderly to describe the withdrawal and people didn't think it was immediate? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think that was really what was what was driving the no vote or the yes vote. The 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 context was that the uh, the the progressive end of the Democratic Party was only willing to talk about stopping the bombing or some kind of negotiations. Nobody on the uh, there was talking about withdrawing from Vietnam in any kind of way in the in, that you could measure. Um, uh, McCarthy attacked us, in fact, for, for even supporting withdrawal. So did Kennedy. So, um, you know, I don't think that was it. What, what I think took the edge off were two different things. One was the uh, longstanding anti-communism and uh, sense in America. Uh, also, we don't want to cut and run and all those types of, of stereotypes. Secondly, uh, when Johnson withdrew from the race, the night before, that he did that because he did not want to be defeated in the primary by McCarthy or anybody else. But um, the NBC people told us that one of the consequences of that was that we lost some edge on the vote too, that people didn't come out or whatever. Uh, so I think it was the combination of the attacks on the whole idea of getting out and um, the withdrawal of Johnson that reduced the vote. Whether it reduced it 7% or not, I don't know. We never were able to establish the kind of organization we needed in certain sections of the city. I don't, I don't have the sheet in front of me, but I, I'm thinking of the area near Cottage Grove Road now. There was a big fertilizer plant out there. I just remember that. And um, the so there were certain sections of the city that we were never able to uh, really established the kind of base we needed to win. We were, our initial feeling was if we got 40% of the vote, we would have a victory. And we did. Um, the place that we won, uh, other than the student awards, was the, what were then the black precincts in South Madison. I think we got 49.9% of the vote in those. But those records are all in the State Historical Society in any event. Yeah. Speaking of the black vote, during this period, blacks were disproportionately drafted, sent to combat units and killed in Vietnam compared to their numbers in the general population as a whole. Did the national peace movement develop an organic relationship with black and Hispanic communities to organize against the war? I, I think probably helps in a certain sense, but the blacks were leading. I I think when you listen to Martin Luther King speaking in 1967, he was far in advance of the national peace movement in his understanding of violence, the draft, the society, and what was going on. So in a certain sense, yes, there might have been some political you know, results there. That, But the white movement, I think, was particularly tone deaf. And in the white student movement in particular, um, they, um, it was not, they were not, it was not the same movement. And I, I think that, uh, I don't, I don't at this point want to 
um, raise all these, uh, I guess, factional issues that we had at that point. But I think that um, uh, that you did not have what the NCC had anyway initially was black and white people on that steering committee, and that was broken up in in November of '65 by a faction of the peace movement and never reestablished. Okay, so I don't think that you had the kind of movement that we could have had, at least at the student level, um, after 1965 or 66. At the national level, the NAACP or the, the so-called official peace movement, I didn't get the impression, um, and I didn't, wasn't close to it, that there was a great deal of um, coordination or real discussion. And that sort of brings us to the next big protest, which wasn't about Vietnam, but was in fact the most successful political protest of the decade, the Black Studies Strike in February 1969. It started with a symposium on campus called the Black Revolution to What Ends. You were part of a panel on racism in Madison during that symposium. How was it that you had enough credibility on racial issues to talk about racism as part of a symposium that was dominated by black activists? Uh, well, uh, partially because of um, the draft stuff, partially because uh, we got uh, uh, Gene Parks elected uh, alderman uh, through the anti-war movement, the anti, the, our Vietnam, our, our referendum registered hundreds and hundreds of people to vote in that precinct and supported his, his candidacy. So people knew that uh, we had had prior to that a um, a, a welfare rights organization which I was involved in, and uh, so people knew that. The um, uh, we had some other issues which I can't can't remember, unfortunately, where I was in touch with people in the black community, and so um, you know people people knew me and. Um, was I'd people been, against was people against racism part of that? that yeah, night? yeah, and I think I was chairman or co-chairman of it. We were raising issues at that time of the university's um, uh, discriminatory policies. We were raising issues about housing at that time, so people knew knew me. So I got put on the panel. That's all, and um, it, it, you know it wasn't very hard. Madison, Madison is a segregated city. It was segregated then, and it's more segregated now. And it wasn't hard to to make that case. The problem with the with the white left, uh, in a certain sense, is that people understand some of these things on a ideological point of view or something. But when it comes down to what are we going to do in the city, we we I would say the white liberal left, which was the dominant was the dominant political group for many years, never could really address it. Any event, the the students, and the uh, were particularly aggravated, and they, I think absolutely correctly, when the students of an Oshkosh had been expelled for being involved in a uh, anti-racist uh, demonstration, and and under state law had the right to apply to the University of Madison, and did so, and were accepted, and then the university goes after them and tries to throw them out again. And that began to really antagonize people. 
And it was only, uh, I would say that, you know, my understanding of that and the understanding of other people took a while. I mean, what, you know, you'd say, what did they do? They did what? Who did this? You know, and it was uh, incredible. And so you then have this symposium, which had been discussed, you know, scheduled a year in advance. And all of a sudden, you have coming together people. At that time, also, SDS had established itself as an organization here at UW and was uh, focused on issues of racism. And I think really began to take the lead amongst white students in dealing with that um, and, and did so. Meanwhile, though, the student government was also progressive on these issues and felt that uh, something was wrong, particularly when it became obvious that the university is recruiting more black students from Africa or Tennessee than it was Wisconsin, which uh, may still be the case for all I know. I know the numbers haven't changed. Yeah. Marjorie Tabankin, who is vice president of WSA, wrote a particularly scathing denunciation of the university as a racist institution. That's right. Yeah. That is correct. Well, I'm afraid that is all the time we have for part one of my conversation with Frank Emsbach about his new memoir, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. But there's another full hour where we focus on Frank's blue-collar union life in Massachusetts. We'll air that the last Monday in December. George Dreckman will be in this chair next Monday with his guest, Scott Spoolman, author of Wisconsin Waters. I'll be back November 28th for a conversation with UW alum and former radical Chicago alderperson Helen Schiller about her memoir, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. Until then... On behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shali Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio.